Welcome to the Word and Journey podcast, conversations with friends about stories that shape us and make us think, and some stories that are just for fun. We're busy people reading books in realistic increments. Follow along in the book and join in the conversation, or just sit back and enjoy. Our aim is to unpack the story and offer you things to ponder. Either way, thanks for being here. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and all other friends to the Word and Journey podcast. Once again, we are bringing to you stories that shape us and make us think. And the very quippable, quotable Oscar Wilde, in this case, we are concluding the saga of the picture of Dorian Gray. About to find out what's going to happen to Dorian. Oh my goodness, he's a, he's a character. And I'm here again with Joel Summer. Hi. Hi. How are you right now? I'm glad I've uh, for the invitation and that I have a right to be here. I'm feeling that kind of that excitement that you feel at the end of a book, even though I finished the book, it's kind of the finishing of this little series. So it's like, I'm kind of excited to finish the book and kind of sad to see it go at that at the same time. Yeah. Do you ever have that experience of finishing a book and feeling like it's a mini breakup? Yeah, but it goes like other breakups where I'm like really glad to finish it. And then like about a, a, like there's a delayed reaction and then the heart, the heartache sets in. I'm like, wish that it was back. But usually when I'm finishing a book, I'm so glad uh, to kind of like get, get it through and move on to something new or have like a little break. But yeah, I love finishing books. It feels so good in general. I've read a few bad ones, but since I mostly read classics, um, I've read very few bad books. So that's cool, but also not very risky. Yeah, it's true. There is something special about the classics. And uh, yeah, you kind of feel like you accomplished something. And that's, that's really nice. What What's the worst book you've ever read? Oh, goodness. I mean, I, I think there have been some bad ones. I'm, I'm kind of inclined to say The Maze Runner at this point, which I, I really I liked the Maze Runner movies a lot. Mostly because I enjoyed Dylan O'Brien and uh, what's his name? Thomas Sanger, Thomas Brody Sanger, that kid. The book was just really badly written. Like not not a I mean not not a really good writing style. And like the characters were like really unlikable in the in the in the book. Uh, the the movie rendition was quite a bit better. Mm. That, that was pretty bad. I'm trying to think, what are there, some other bad books? I'm feeling that right now. I'm reading this book called The uh, Neuromancer. Um, I think it's from around 1980. I can't even remember the author's name, but it's sort of known as being like the start of like cyberpunk. And um, it's kind of hitting me like a Philip K. Dick book a little bit where like the ideas are kind of cool and the world building is really cool, but the like the craftsmanship isn't really good. And like, yeah, I, I, like I said, I'm lucky to have mostly just read good books and I'm like, I don't know, maybe three or four chapters into this book. And I'm like, I don't have to read this book. I think I'm going to maybe jump ship on it. Sorry, diehard sci-fi fans, but I may not finish it. I think that's a really marvelous thing to allow yourself to, to not finish a book. Uh, there, there have definitely been some books that I've plotted through like out of commitment to like the author or the experience or like the hype of it or something. And I'm real, I, at some point I realized... I'm, so, I'm, I'm more than a few decades old. Like I don't have much time and I, I barely have time to read, much less to read a dribble and twaddle and it's no good yes only good books for us only good books yes or mostly i feel like i have to take a gamble every now and then 
But part of the reason why I'm maybe jumping ship with the Neuromancer is I know I have Miracami's Norwegian Wood waiting for me on hold at the library, ready for pickup, and I've heard nothing but good things. So it's like, okay, I could go ahead and grab that book and get going. That does sound really good. Another one that was kind of disappointing is a book called Here I Am by Jonathan Safran Foer, which I will say Foer's first two novels, everything is illuminated and incredibly loud, extremely loud, incredibly close. Two of the best novels I've ever read, two of my favorite ever stories. Uh, Actually, both the books and the movie versions, I really love both of them. Uh, And so I was really excited about his, his latest novel, Here I Am. And then, I mean, it's, it's engaging and kind of funny, but it's it's more it's more family drama and just like drama drama. And it's a little, it's I'm having that experience. Some people talk about of like I already have enough drama in my life. I don't need to read about more of it. It's it's not it's too realistic to really be like entertaining. And it feels more just like oh, I'm like being a voyeur into somebody else's life. Now, if there were like aliens or something and some superpowers, then it would feel kind of fantastical. Then it would be fine, but. Anyway, as it is, I am somewhere in the middle of Jacob and Julia's family saga, some bombing somewhere. I've been in the middle for like two years. So back to our uh, program for this evening, and it is (laughs) evening when we are doing this. Uh, We get to conclude Dorian Gray, but first we get to hear from a real-life poet. Joel has some poems, and I think... It would be great to take a moment with those because they're quite good. Thank you, Moses. I'm excited to share two poems that I picked out. One is very new. Actually, relatively, they're both new um, within the last year or so. The first one is called A Close Shave, which I believe I've shared with you before. Moses has a writer's meetup group that I attend occasionally. And um, that's kind of how we met. So anyway, I'm all, what to say about this poem? It's somewhat autobiographical and about a, I'm I'm trying to, my mind goes to try to tie it to Dorian Gray, even though I shouldn't do that, but I guess it does uh, have to do with (laughs) the the spiraling down and uh, kind of just a little, uh, brush with um you know something really bad that could have happened and didn't happen and then feeling kind of like i don't know grateful after the fact so <clears throat> i will read okay. a close shave my bicycle was bubble wrapped in hundreds of tiny pockets filled with a false sense of security and when they popped smelled like legs mig crank on a summer night's thrill with two pedals spinning down a curved hill. The spokes trim the shadows along the edge of the sidewalk. A noble fur that leaned on the curb waved a needled hand as I zipped by, clouds billowing on either side, making my own wind, jacket ballooned behind me, eyes unblinking, dried out, head tilted low, while the asphalt licked the tires with its rough, yellow-striped tongue. The speed, a problem now, each tree less friendly than the next, until one jutted its fingers like a brush 
into my matted mop, and I almost died, looking back on it, with a branch to the brain. The chin snapped back and forward, speed wobble that vibrated in the rhythmic bobbing slope of a windswept Adam's apple. And that is Close Shave. My next poem is called South Jetty, Warrington, Oregon. And a couple words about this piece. This is a special spot to me. I My mom is from Warrington. Um, and for those of you that don't know, Warrington is close to Astoria, Oregon, at the mouth of the Columbia River. It's kind of, It's a little different than some of the other more touristy beach towns in that it kind of has uh, more a little more industry, or at least historically, it's probably more touristy now than than it used to be. And it also is a place where, uh, you know, ships come in and there's this giant jetty that um, comes out. And so this, this space has always, I don't know, it just struck me as like a special place of, of coming together uh, of different, different types of topographies and, and then also when I wrote this poem, I was kind of questioning kind of like some relationship stuff and, and some unsurety and um, some, some cosmic thoughts. So here we go. South Jetty Warrington, Oregon. Below the washing, swallowing force of white, a lowing bowed slow across a string of waves. White powder, alive, vented as if pushed by bellows and swiftly slid up the palisade arm of unbuckled boulders that reached into the blue-gray undulating wilderness. Wildness in wispy sand grain plumes, lifted by wind gusting into the dunes, formed into columns that the rains claimed in droplets that hurtled back to the beach held there as a wet layer over the dry. I saw the mounds of jetty between river mouth and ocean body ground and heard their purpose of separation in the currents of tumult. A twilight smolder on the horizon lights the littoral zones push and pull. The dusk, a sacred space between two worlds, never ends as a thin band that spins around the globe. The strip of rocks points west and breaks the time zones into shattered ribs, scattered in the barrel of each new wave. There you have it. Thanks. So it's just so beautiful. It's uh, so rich with imagery. Like when you talk about this close shave on the bicycle, like it's just like, you know, fully immersed in like this moment as it just like careening into disaster and yeah the the cosmic thoughts on the jetty it just like the yeah the, the whole the, the war antenna story area just so so rich such a rich topography with the river and the ocean and the mountains and everything all the close together like picturing that and under the canopy of a beautiful sunset it just ah warms my heart even to just to think about it thank you thank you for sharing my pleasure and just a quick plug for myself um you can read more of my poetry on Instagram at Joel here as my handle. And I also have a book for sale that's called The Bourbon Boar, which is like the misadventures of a pig that's uh, winds up drinking a bit too much. And that's an illustrated kind of humor type poem that um, I did with a good friend of mine, uh, Wes 
um, Hubbard, also the known as the Wooden Cyclops, great artist. And that's for sale on my website, which is www.joelhere.com. And there's also a couple copies for sale at Broadway Books if you live in Portland. So that's great. The Bourbon Boar. I didn't actually know you had that, but that had that out. That is amazing. I am very I'll intrigued. Have to, I'll have to show that to you if you haven't seen that. Yeah, you absolutely must. Now that we've had beauty and wonderful, uplifting things, we'll talk about corruption. <laughs> Briefly summarizing. So we took a slightly larger chunk of text this time. We finished the story. So we're reading, or we should have read, we will have been reading, we will have to read odd grammatical structures. Anyway, chapters 13 through 14. So briefly summarizing. So again, chapter 13, we hinted at this one in the last episode, but Dorian kills Basil, the man who painted his painting. What the actual, what is going on? <laughs> it's still a clean podcast, so I can't say everything I want to say. Shortly, out, So immediately following there, plot points, uh, Dorian recruits Alan Campbell to dispose of the body. Alan is a former friend of Dorian's. They have some history, I guess, a really interesting textured dramatic history that's hinted at. Apparently, they were very close friends, thick as thieves, and something happened, and now Alan hates Dorian, which appears to be the theme for Dorian. He has a reputation, which, again, we, we talked about last time. Uh, he has this reputation for ruining people, and Alan is one of those people. But Dorian succeeds in cajoling him into disposing of the body. And after that, Dorian goes to yet another party. That seems to be what he and his class do. It's a interesting scene. It, it was a little hard to pin down what that particular scene was about, but there's this feel to it of everyone just being really superficial, no one really knowing each other. Everyone just thinks Dorian's just this wonderful person because he's beautiful, he's young, he's elegant, he has all of these cool experiences, and he's just the coolest thing. That's just a party scene. And a lot of interesting quotes, uh, interesting moments with Lord Henry, because he has lots of interesting moments. Um, and we'll come back to some things that come there. Following this, Dorian's way of coping with himself and all of his experiences is to head for an opium den. He hires a cab or a carriage or something to take him, to, take him away, away off to the fringes of society to find opium, because that's how that happened back then. And... His goal is to clear the soul by means of the senses and the senses by means of the soul, uh, says a quote there. And that is what is depicted as kind of like, like the rock bottom, lowest of low that a person can get to. While he's there, he meets another associate, a kid named Adrian, who it's hinted that there's some history there as well, but we don't really get a lot of it. Most notably, while he's there at the docks in the grungy part of town, he encounters none other than James Vane, who, if you all remember, was the elder brother of the late Sybil Vane, who had basically promised to kill anyone who harmed his sister, and so he has a beef with Dorian. James Vane catches Dorian, but doesn't recognize him because 20 years have passed and Dorian hasn't aged at all. Uh, and so that is how Dorian escapes. There's another... Group dialogue scene where all of Dorian's friends seem to be reflecting on love and romance and pleasure. And you kind of get the sense of him just being removed from himself, caught up in just like the vapid nature of his friends, distracting himself from reality. 
until James Vane shows up at the window watching him and he faints and it's he has this disaster. From there, Dorian's moping in his room. Lord Henry takes him out hunting. While they're hunting, they one of the hunting party uh, shoots into a bush and uh, accidentally kills somebody who is there and uh, lurking in the bushes. Upon some discovery reflection, uh, it is discovered that that was actually James Vane. And so when Dorian finds this out, he's just so elated. He feels so free because James Vane is apparently the last connection to anything that could uh, get him in trouble. And also all of this time, Dorian is having uh, obsessions and flashbacks uh, to to Basil Howard and his body and his own murder. Uh, so yeah, that's very much an ever-present thing in Dorian's mind, this growing, looming presence. From there feeling elated by now being free from this person who who, who kind of knows him and could, could harm him. Uh, Dorian gets it in his head. There's this other lady he's kind of been in love with. Her name's Hetty Merton. We don't really meet her a lot, but uh, I guess she was kind of important to Dorian. And he decides he wants to be good. He wants to redeem himself. And, oh, goodness, did we remember to do the spoilers? We're doing spoilers. Anyway, I'll, I'll edit this. <laughs> but still not at the beginning. So Dorian decides in his head he wants to redeem himself and be good and no longer be uh, the bad the bad boy that he's been. And his version of that is to break up with Hetty, essentially, and dump her. And his idea is like, I'm not going to corrupt her like I corrupted everybody else. I'm leaving her so that she can be free to bloom and flower somewhere else. Anyway, and he's excited about that. Lord Henry thinks it's kind of ridiculous. And you kind of get the sense Lord Henry's thinking like, what's the point of being good? You're more fun when you're just you. Uh, but Dorian's kind of kind of de- determined, which brings us to the end. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Where Dorian's really motivated to have a new life, start over, and he's up in his study, and there's the portrait, and it's the very visceral reminder of everything broken and dark about himself, and he doesn't like it, and he doesn't want it, and so his idea is to destroy this thing that carries all of his brokenness. Only in the story universe and the magic of it, when he goes to stab the painting, he ends up stabbing himself. And so he absorbs back into himself all of the uh, darkness and corruption and sins and burdens that were on the painting into his own self. And so then his servants come up to the study and they find a really beautiful portrait and this really ugly shriveled dead man uh, on, on the floor. And that's the last, literally the last paragraph of the book. is, And that's where we end. So... So, the end. Good night. <laughs> Not really. We're going to talk more. Yeah. What are some of your first impressions, takeaways from the end of the story and how it ends? Gosh, I don't know where to start. I I think I can't hold back. But from one thing that kind of blew me away a little bit, and I guess I should say that this was the second time I've read this book, so I, the ending wasn't quite as a shocker. But the second, my second reading, I almost felt like the hidden climax is when Lord Henry almost becomes like a sympathetic character for a while. And like, one, you're like, wow, Dorian is the bad guy now, and Lord Henry is not the bad guy anymore and then also you're kind of i was kind of sad for him that uh you know that he even though he probably was reaping what he sowed but like he was going through a divorce and he's just sad and wants to kind of like brood on um his emotions of um i don't know that his wife has a new 
lover that is a great piano player and then he wants to uh, have Dorian play piano so he can just, uh, you know, sop up those emotions. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. That part hit me more than I thought it would. There's there's one kind of thought um, that I was taking away from the book that came back to me even after I finished. I was like, wow, that's that was a part that I didn't remember as well. The part about Lord Henry? Yeah, just uh, and just kind of how insisting he was at playing the piano. I, I kind of enjoyed that tension, like how he was just wanted Dorian to keep playing uh, that Chopin piece or whatever he was playing, and like just wanted to like I don't know keep using Dorian the way he's always sort of just like kept using him to live vicariously through him, and then but then you're kind of gripped by how Dorian is just in this inner turmoil and like. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I enjoyed I enjoyed that part of the book quite a bit. Well, their whole relationship was really fascinating, and it's uh, and then the, and it, it could, the way you're talking about it, it's this depiction of objectification uh, for Lord Henry. Yeah, Dorian's this new and cool thing who's so beautiful, even still twenty years later, and he has all of these cool experiences, and uh, he's someone that can be endlessly fascinating, and that's uh, a mechanism that Lord Henry needs, and. This, this feels like it mirrors what would be like in real life if you have somebody who's yeah, abusing abusing drugs of some sort and they have a dealer. It is profitable for the dealer if that person remains in their addiction. And so the the dealer or the supplier or the supplier, you know, do, you know, doesn't want them really getting in recovery or any any or any attempt that the addict might make to heal or, or to to get get out of their their lifestyle uh will be, will be frowned upon because it disrupts the system too much other people lose an an, an income stream or a punching bag or, or something something so it's really uh really this insidious sort of almost abusive definitely exploitive sort of relationship really gets captured and uh, there's this quote right in the moment you're talking about where dorian says the soul is a terrible reality it can be bought and sold and bartered away it can be poisoned or made perfect. There is a soul in each one of us. I know it. And then Henry, Henry, Lord Henry replies, we have given up our belief in the soul. Play me something. Play me a nocturne. Speaking of kind of the addiction aspect that runs clearly through the whole book, I guess, but I was really um, surprised when I believe it is in chapter 14, when he blackmails Alan Campbell into disposing uh, the body through through all these chemicals, it reminded me of the show uh, Breaking Bad. And for those who haven't seen that, and I guess, are we on a code, a uh, non-spoiler alert code? Like, how does that work? We're sort of, we're sort of, sort of we'll, we'll alert you. Okay, we're, we're going to spoil a little bit of Breaking Bad, but I don't think like the, the crux of it. So if you want to skip forward like a minute, <laughs> you can come back to us. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just uh, want to uh, maintain good um, podcasting edi- etiquette. So for those <laughs> that haven't that. seen Breaking Bad, I've seen and and, and full uh, admission, I have not actually seen the final season. I don't want to explain why I stopped watching it, but it's such a dark show that I just needed to take a break. <laughs> but in the, I believe it's the climax of the first season. They come in a into a situation where a guy's been killed, and then they have to, and then they use chemicals to uh, dispose of of a body. And I was like, oh my gosh! Uh, and I I do 
feel, I can't prove this, that Breaking Bad does take, you know, the picture of Dorian Gray as an inspiration for the show um, as the main character, Walter White, um, is kind of uh, his his long fall from grace, basically, and how he is a drug dealer that doesn't use drugs. But then I think the show goes on to show uh, how, you know, addiction can take other forms besides, you know, taking the narcotics, you know, the, the excitement, the thrill of danger and doing, doing these things. And he's, um, you know, the show isn't an exact one-to-one parallel, but I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, that got my mind working, thinking about the, at that melted body, which was gosh, uh, pretty gross and kind of, yeah, the, the Dorian can't go much lower. Um, I felt after that. There's also a moment like that in the show Riverdale too. But not quite as gross. Yeah, there's a there's there's a deadening, and it's interesting where even the way he talks about it, he'll look at Basil's body, and he's just, and Dorian thinks of it just as the dead thing, like he's completely un either unable or unwilling to recognize the humanity, even in even in the the soulless corpse, and it just becomes a thing to to be disposed of. No no honor, no ceremony, no no respect. Yeah, it it is pretty pretty uh, pretty low there. When you talk about like the downward spiral, I, I would agree that that's a really, really brilliantly depicted theme, especially when you start looking at. Because you're right, it's uh, it's not just about drugs, although there are drugs in this story. Um, but when you think about addiction as more more accurately talk, described as uh, uh, obsession, preoccupation, compulsion as well as like a trauma reaction, uh, as well as a dissociative maneuver, then a lot, a lot of, yeah, yes, Dorian is absolutely an addict, uh, which I, I mean, I don't prefer to use that term in real life clinical settings, but, you know, we could assign it to, to Tim for, for now for, for reference. He's, he's caught up in a, a cycle of obsession. He's obsessed with himself. And so he's obsessed with like maintaining a particular image. He's obsessed with hiding his portrait hiding his wrongs. He's obsessed with finding more pleasures, more pleasures, more pleasures. And in pursuit of those, in pursuit of the pleasures, that becomes his guiding value. And, and it's an interesting thing. Like when whatever you organize, your, whatever your primary value is, is really formative because you end up organizing your whole life around it. So having a primary value such as, you know, love and care for people or, you know, sanctification in the image of Christ, or I want as much pleasure as I can have, or, or whatever it is, um, your life takes on a very particular shape in response to that. And we're definitely seeing the shape that Dorian takes. He says at one point, uh, he's talking to somebody in one of those party scenes, and he says, I've never searched for happiness. Who wants happiness? I have searched for pleasure. And someone says, well, did you find it? And he said, often, too often. Yes, he's a hedonist, definitely. One kind of funny thing that just happened, and I almost feel bad because this is a somewhat serious subject matters. When you were going over, like, when you organize your life around a certain belief, it makes a certain shape. And right as you said that, I was thinking, like, one thing you could do is, like, I uh, I want to organize my life around eating pizza every chance you can get. And I was like, oh, wow, that really would change the shape of, of your body. Uh, and then you were like, it, it makes your life take, <laughs> take a certain shape. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it definitely um, would. 
And I don't mean to make light of people that have uh, eating uh, addictions. I know that's a real thing for sure. It definitely is a real thing, but that was also a good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I'll talk with people about like costs and values and counter values uh, or, and, and, and I'll say, yeah, I mean, for every, every value you have has a cost to it. Uh, and some of those costs we're willing to pay because, you know, we pay a cost for, you know, like to say I value having kids that are healthy, that costs you a lot. And that's, that's a good cost to pay. We're willing to do that. Uh, you know, values also have counter values too. So, so I could say, yeah, if I, if I value having a six pack of, of abs, not beers, um, then, you know, the, the cost is going to be like a lot of sit-ups every day and the counter value would be eating pizza every day or donuts every day or something saying, well, what am I going to do in my life? What, when, how, what shape is my life going to take? You know, really have to pin down, well, if I'm valuing two opposite things or things that seem to contradict each other. I can only choose one and that, that that does get harder as it gets to be like bigger things. Like, you know, it comes down to, you know, uh, you know, in Dorian's life, we see he see he, he functionally values pleasure above all else. And at some point he gets the thought in his head, Oh, I'd actually like to have virtue too. You know, those two things are not going to live together. He might think he can have a fresh start and destroy the portrait and just move on. But uh, ultimately, he only gets one, one of those things. Another thing I was thinking about, and I was I was trying to put this, the whole book after finishing it, kind of looking for, for spiritual uh, themes in it. A question that came to mind was, why did James Vane, it was James, right? Yeah, James Vane, um, Sybil's brother, why did he die or why did he have to die? And it kind of got me thinking back to why I was, why um, Basil had to die too. And then, I don't know, this isn't a huge leap, but basically Dorian's framed, other than, I guess, Lord Henry, which is his closest friend, and a few other people that don't quite know him as well. He just has this, everything, everybody that he touches turns to um, rot, basically, like uh, people... Uh, anyone that's had a close relationship has had something bad happen. And some of the stuff is hinted at some of it's, uh, I guess a few things are said explicitly. He had some details to blackmail this guy that never wanted to see him again, et cetera. But anyway, what I'm getting at is that both James and Basil, I guess, idealized, Dorian in like he's I guess in in some ways uh, like a, a devil like character where to even give any attention is going to reap the wrong is a bad investment. So James is looking for revenge, and I guess you know you're not going to usually find something good there. But also, uh, you know, Dorian kind of uh, worships Dorian. Uh, excuse me. Uh, Basil worshipped Dorian, and then even though he had pure motives, it still ended up getting him, getting him killed. So um, I guess I was, uh, I don't know. I guess I'm running out of gas on that one. But uh, what do you think of that? <laughs> this is some really good, good, good thoughts. Um, like why, why did Basil have to die? Why does James have to die? Um, Basil in particular. I was listening to. 
an episode of The Symbolic World. It's another podcast I, I like uh, with uh, Jonathan Peugeot, and he's talking about why do people sacrifice? You know, sacrifice is actually more functional, human sacrifice in particular is actually more fundamental to human culture than we might think it is. Uh, you know, and, and he'll talk about us being driven by drives to uh, preserve ourselves and drives to promote ourselves. And for the interest of those those desires, we will sacrifice things, you know, sacrifice well-being, food, money, resources, time, other people that might like get in the way of that. And, you know, Dorian certainly seems to depict that, you know, to, to preserve himself. Uh, Basil presents a threat. So, so he has to go. James in a James in a way too, and granted, Dorian isn't taking an active role in that, but he's certainly very very excited about it. I was having this thought uh, when you're talking about this pattern that is is part of it of how everything Dorian touches turns to rot, and it's this idea that there are no private sins, or in in a sense, there there's no private life, or this idea that I can have a private life or just my interior life, or I can, I can do things over here by myself and they're not going to hurt anyone is really not true because we are inherently interconnected with people, whether we're part of a family, part of a community, uh, or even just like occupying space with people, uh, or even just like moving about through society. There's, there's, um, I was listening in this other book that I'm listening to for, for work. It's this book on, uh, internal family systems and somatic experiencing. And the, the author is talking about the, the anatomy of the heart and the, the powerful thing that the heart is. And I guess like the heart ha- generates the most powerful like electrical field like in the body or something that is like, extends like 10 feet out around us. So so there's a way like our our energy goes beyond us to to affect the people around us too. And so if my heart is corrupted or burdened or darkened or troubled or angry, that has an effect on the people around me, like whether or not I intend it, whether or not I acknowledge it, whether or not they even know they're being affected by me. But as I as I move through the world, I have an effect. And my inner life has a drastic effect on my outer life, whether or not I'm acknowledging it or even aware of it. And so Dorian, you know, he, this interesting character, he, I mean, his his inner life is on a portrait up in his library, but even though he's trying to hide it, it's not able. To, it's not something that's able to be hidden. It still has a corrupting effect on him, and thus on everyone that he encounters. I mean, obviously, this is a very dramatized, exaggerated version of that, but that's still a true dynamic with with real people today. Like, uh, <laughs> so, uh, and I mean, it's something that comes up a lot in in the work that I do. You know, the, these these people who have who are acting out have active addiction, compulsion. To, to various things that they they often hold this ideal this fantasy of well maybe i can just do it a little bit and hide it from my partner my wife and my girlfriend husband boyfriend but the reality is they're, they're they're corrupting the relationships by not saying anything because because they're they're they are burdened and the energy they bring is one with secrets and not a full not their full selves because if, you, if you're keeping a secret you're by nature holding some of yourself back from a relationship so true intimacy is not possible. No, that that's uh, that makes sense to me. I think another reason maybe why Wild had James die in I, I don't know. I I thought it was just a kind of a peculiar way and the way that it was written was sort of like matter of fact. I don't know. Uh just the way that he was just shot in a bush. But I think that by him dying and then it was 
to show how Dorian was freed. I guess you mentioned this in the, in the synopsis, like he was just overjoyed and felt like this was his chance to start again. This was like his one thing holding him back. But, you know, we've, we've mentioned, you know, the downward spiral and um, usually spirals uh, get closer and closer together as, as they go, as they go further down. And so it's like not very long, from these feelings of um, elation and being like, I get to to start my life over before uh, the cycle has started again. It's not for real because these, the patterns are so locked in. I think there's a point too, in our downward spirals where we're so disconnected from ourselves, from the, the image of God, from like the, the, the pure goodness within us that we can't recognize, can't recognize like, truth for, for what is truth or can't recognize um what am i trying to say like well so so in this case so so when dorian sees that james vane has been killed uh, another human has just died by accident in this really horribly ridiculous way and this family is basically obliterated now and dorian has no remorse no sadness no empathy no grief for for this he's just like ah how does this benefit me there's another moment like that that I'm forgetting. I hopefully will come back to it. Oh, the 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 Hetty Merton drama. So yeah, there's this woman that he he's into, she's into him. And his thought is, I'm going to dump her. I'm going to break her heart so that she can like go go thrive somewhere. And he manages to convince himself that he's doing her a favor, which it kind of maybe he is, but he manages to tell himself well she should be grateful to me for breaking up with her and breaking her heart because you know it'd be better for her in the long run i think is he's he's so disconnected from his own self he's necessarily disconnected from other people also including not being able to really comprehend or acknowledge their feelings or their pain and and maybe that's part of why he gets along with lord henry and his crowd too is because they're if through other methods also disconnected from themselves and they're and their pain and their emotions and other people. And so they're just in the cycle of like, we're just like these really superficial disconnected people and not talking about anything of substance and really just like avoiding ourselves. Yeah. I felt that theme of disconnection, especially during kind of the, the dialogue towards the end of the book between Lord Henry and Dorian, where there were, uh, there were some times where I noted that they were, that it felt like they were just kind of talking to themselves really. They they weren't really listening to each other and responding. They were both just kind of just saying the same things over and over again to themselves and kind of isolated. It, was, it uh, reminded me a tiny bit of kind of more my dad's side of the family where there's sometimes there's this, you know, at family gatherings where I feel like everyone's just having a conversation uh, by themselves and nobody's listening to each other uh, in a much more benign yeah. way, of course. But uh, I like that just drives me crazy when people are just sort of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's what uh, crazy, crazy people do is just say the same thing over and over again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so Oscar Wilde, he has, he has a quote for this. I think this quote is the narrator talking he does, and he's, he's describing rich people uh, as being under the impression that inordinate joviality can atone for an entire lack of ideas. Yeah, I have family members like this, <laughs> and, I, and I and I love my family, and and they're fun. They're so fun to be with, and 
what gets tricky is when fun becomes an absolute expectation. Because once we must have fun, then we can't feel anymore. We can't truly be with each other or see each other because we're caught up in like the next joke or the next funny thing. And that does get tiring after a while. Yeah, that dynamic is not entirely foreign to me, but I, uh, I'll i take it over boring. Maybe I have a little bit of Oscar Wilde in me. Oh yeah, I, I do my, my my performer part and my my parts that just want to like be jovial and have fun. Really love it, and it's I don't know, it's this fun mode to be in of like being in performer mode and jokester mode and like who can come up with the best quip and the best pun uh, or the best dad joke. And it's fun and it's clever and there's there there's a, there's a lot of culture and connection. I guess there's, there's a type of connection that can happen there once you're like building on inside jokes and building on inside jokes and building an inside jokes from like five, 10, 20 years ago also. And uh, there, there, there is a kind of synergy that happens there, which is cool. But, um, but again, it's nice to be able to step into that and then step into other modes and other levels of conversation. Uh, and then sometimes cycle back into uh, family joke mode. Uh, but when, but again, it's, it's those environments where, nope, we absolutely must have, you know, jokes and laughter and raucous songs and nothing else. Only, only, only the fun, only the fun, only the fun. I might challenge that mode just, just a tiny bit. Yeah. You need that balance. And, um, when those moments, moments happen, I think everyone or most people appreciate it too. Yeah. There's so many good quotes and notable quotes from this section that will, by the time this airs, will hopefully be turned into memes because I need memeable material. Memes are hilarious, unless they're sad. And these are going to be sad memes, but. <laughs> the ridiculous Lord Henry, one of the things he says, what on earth could happen to you, Dorian? You have everything in the world that a man can want. There is no one who would not be delighted to change places with you. You know, reveling in his privilege. And then Dorian responds, well, there is no one with whom I would not change places, Harry. And that's coming from a point in the story when he's reflecting on just like the darkness within and he doesn't like it and he doesn't like himself. And I think reading that, that line was when I'm thinking about, uh, so, so there's the, 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 the gospel parable where, you know, you know, Jesus is talking about the, like the rich man who has so much wealth, he tears down his barns to build bigger barns. And then, you know, the, the Lord Jesus says, you know, you fool this very night will, your soul will be required of you. And then there's the question, what is a profit of man if he gains the world but loses his soul? Well, in case you wondered what that looks like, here's Dorian Gray, who literally has gained like everything, everything his world can offer him. And his soul is a corrupted painting up in the attic and he's losing it. So yeah, it's not, not, not super pretty. I'd love to talk a little bit about the ending, like the ending twist where in trying to slash the portrait, he destroys himself and throwbacks to what came up in like chapter two, I think uh, as Basil is finishing the painting. It's a gorgeous painting of a gorgeous young man. And there's this question. So who's the real Dorian based on how uh, Wilde has chosen to conclude the story? Uh, what would you say? Who, who is, was, shall be ever after the real Dorian? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking about it. That means I have to answer. Oh. <laughs> well, okay, I'll. No, I mean I'm happy to venture opinions because 
Yeah, why don't you go I first? Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, open up that opinion oven. What feels scary about this is like the content of what happens in the painting. I'm leaning toward, in a very real way, like the painting really is the real Dorian because it's uh, it's it's his inner life and in in the world building and this doesn't happen in in real life but you know we have our inner life we have our outer life uh dorian gray has his inner life depicted outside of himself it's externalized uh which is a great therapy tool which we will often do that as as a visualization to say can you externalize this aspect of yourself for this thing so that you can look at it study it get to know better but that's a visualization like your inner life is actually still inside you <laughs> so but there's a way where yeah I would say it's the painting because the painting is his inner life and the inner life is the soul. And that is, that is, that is the core of a person, the essential essence. There is this idea, certainly within like Orthodox Christian thought. And I think within, well, ideally within like a lot of other like Christian thought in particular, that uh, the spiritual death is a true death. You know, you know, Jesus will talk about, you know, don't fear people who can kill the body they can't kill the soul rather fear fear the death of the soul like the death of the body is like not permanent and not not ultimate uh with, within within christian thought i'm 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 reading that as really referring to like the content of your inner life is is the you is is the real you what you do what you say who you have sex with what you do for work those are add-ons and those are the fruit of your your inner world and so and so, and so in Dorian's case, yeah, his his real self is corrupted on on the wall, and when that and when that is killed, then then he is killed because he's going after his actual self to destroy his actual self. Uh, his his body is really secondary; it doesn't matter. And 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 it, and I kind of like the way that it, this is depicted too, because one feature of of addiction, like we've talked about, is dissociation. There's this, these acting out parts take us out of ourselves. They, they smother the essential essence of a person. They push it out. They, they shroud it. They block it. They numb it. They destroy the body so that you can't access it. And, and in that sense, in that sense, like somebody who is like fully caught up in the throes of acting out there, they're, they're dehumanizing themselves. And there's other ways to do that too. There's other types of activities where one can can remove themselves so far from the image of God within or uh, or their essential selves that they 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 separate themselves from their humanity. There, there's 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 ways to do that. Most of us just don't have it depicted on a painting. I absolutely agree with you. You know, the painting became the real Dorian. I think where my mind kind of went back to, and I think we discussed this maybe in the. Uh, the first episode was kind of just personas. And um, I think we related it to social media a little bit and how we, we represent ourselves in a certain um, curated way. But I think this can also be taken to just our conceptions of the world um, and how we organize our belief structures and what meanings um, take on and, what I was thinking about is like after he destroyed the painting, um, he was combined with his soul um, again, and his servants t- 
took a while to figure out who it was again. And I was thinking, I didn't come up with anything, but I was like, why, why did that happen? I guess one, 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 or one, another question I had was that maybe just some, some changes are just too hard for the soul to break, I guess. And I don't know how to take it any bigger than that. But, um, you know, sometimes we, we get so far from where we're aiming that we can kind of course correct or like, you know, we, we've maybe gone in an addiction cycle and we want to go back. And then after maybe you pull yourself out of that and you realize, oh, wow, I lost my house. I lost my family. My kids won't talk to me, all these things. And then, but you're like, at least I'm alive. But um, sometimes the a course correction of any of any system i guess this could be a scientist scientific system or just a physiological system of a human psychological you know you you try to change um too much and then you're you're going to die i guess in in the reconciliation of the beauty that everyone just saw him other than people that had touched had a true experience with how his darkness um just saw him only as a painting and then as he was combined with his body, um, then in, and then in death. Yeah, that's, in, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, he, he gets combined with his body. And in a sense, like, rightly ordered again, where, like, the state of his soul really determines the state of his body. The other question I had, and, and maybe I'm getting a little bit off the cuff with this, is that when he was combined uh, with his soul, uh, if he was uh, combined back again after he destroyed the picture, but if that if that portrait also had Basil's soul in it, how does that mean anything? Am I searching too farther? And then another question I meant to look up on the interwebs and I didn't have, I forgot to, was that there's a part right after the body's been embalmed where he opens up a secret compartment in a Chinese. A cabinet and takes out and looks at this little tin with this green balm in it, and I wasn't sure if that was like the the remains of of the body or if that was like uh, opium or something. Did you did you have a thought on that? Oh, I might have glanced over that kind of quickly. If I'm remembering right, I think I was thinking it was opium in the moment. Okay, someone who. Sorry, I, I kind of like jumped through three <laughs> three loops there. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that that's okay. I mean, I mean, those are some interesting implications. Um, yeah, that's interesting about Basil too, because I mean, his, I mean, I mean, he was killed and his body was destroyed too, and that's I mean, just sacrilege, desecration. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, so, if there's any bit of his soul left in Dorian's portrait, then that I guess that's kind of destroyed too, which I mean, in a sense, I mean, kind of makes sense. Uh, there's a sense that you, you become like what you worship. And so, uh, you know, Dor- Basil was just infatuated with Dorian kind of worshiped the ground. He walked upon uh, his own, his own form of ideology, we could say. And so, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess it'd be something fitting about like him also kind of being destroyed there as well. Yeah. This idea though, of the, the real Dorian, is the portrait and the spiritual death the death of the inner life inner life is the true death yeah the the and the there's a theme of definitely watching his his downward 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 spiral 
And it's this trajectory thing too. There, there were maybe some points where he could have stopped it and could have told a secret or come out about things. Or, I mean, he could have, you know, 20 years ago, he might've been able to start being more virtuous and could have succeeded. But, um, but since our growth and our lives are operate on a, a long-term trajectory basis, you know, no, you know, very, very, very few single singular moments, one-time decisions change the whole course of our lives, like all at once. Like there, you know, that there, I mean, some could, but that, that, that's, I would say more the exception. There's more, many more things where, you know, this one thing that I'm doing, this one choice that I'm making, this one thing that I'm consuming on its own is not going to kill me and maybe won't even do a whole lot all at once on its own. But it's when you string that one thing along with a thousand more just like it that you see, well, this is now the shape and the trajectory of my life. And uh, that's definitely definitely something you see with Dorian. Uh, he's just on this hedonic trajectory. There's this other theme. And again, I mean, it's it's this whole idea of, of, of the portrait. The portrait's his inner life. It's his burden self. And he hides it away. He, in IFS terms, because I must, uh, he creates an exile. Uh, an exile part that's not welcome, that's not given space, that's not acknowledged, that's not loved. And it's that exile that actually has control over him and and ultimately just, you know, overwhelms him, destroys him. You know, so it's like like the counterpart, the inverse, like if this story were to have been written as a redemption story, someone would have loved Dorian or been able to see him or been willing to see him and seen the portrait and loved him or seen the portrait and been able to be compassionate toward him or invite compassion toward himself or toward, toward the portrait or, or some, something like that, where, uh, like the exiled part is brought back into the present where the burdens are, are released or, or he gets to say, yes, I killed Basil Howard. And someone can say, I forgive you, or I'll still be with you, uh, or something. Or, or or any of those party scenes where everybody's just like talking gossip about stuff uh, for somebody to be able to say, actually, like, I'm kind of sad about something. And for other people to be like, oh, that's okay. Tell us about that. I think that brings back to, um, I think we talked earlier episode that um, Caliban, the character from the Shakespeare play, The Tempest, was um, in the, is it the prologue? It's talking about um, the 19th century dislike of realism is the rage of Caliban seeing his own face in glass. And then the 19th century dislike of romanticism is the the rage of Caliban not seeing his own face in glass. And I think this is uh, wild trying to do what, what you just said on more of a psychological level of the inner life and the outer life, the death of the inner soul. But then also uh, Wilde is trying to compare this on a literary level from moving from like romanticism or realism, romanticism into kind of more uh, metaphorical territory and Caliban. um, I don't have a full grasp on it, but basically part of what makes him interesting as a character in the in the Tempest is sort of the compassion that people have for him on like whether he's like a whole or complete soul in a way because he's a slave and he's kind of told what to do but he's like grappling with his own i don't know he's disfigured and you you take pity on him even though he's a despicable character at the same time and Mm -hmm. i think um uh maybe wild is saying that maybe we're all like caliban we're all uh kind of ugly and we're we're mad that 
when we don't look in the mirror and see our own face and we're mad uh when we do look at the mirror and see each other for for what we are so it's like okay here's metaphor and then here's here's the realis- realistic look at it and you're not going to like it either way i guess <laughs> and then but he does it in his classic uh wild witty 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 way and it's it's i mean it's the parts again yeah they're but and this is how the the ifs people understand like the exile parts is they're the the vulnerable wounded burdened parts of ourselves often very young that are desperate to be seen and witnessed and welcomed that want to see themselves reflected in another person's eyes and there are all of these other protective parts that say, no, 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 don't ever show that because people will hate us and reject us and abandon us and hurt us. Uh, and there's always that sort of war going on inside of us. So, yes. And again, most of us don't have this painted on a painting. Unless we do some form of like art therapy where we might actually like depict parts. I mean, they're still inside of us. Like the painting doesn't take on a life of its own quite in that way but there there is there can be something really wonderfully uh therapeutic connective about depicting your inner life uh well i mean this is what journaling is it's it's externalizing your thoughts uh and if you were to illustrate that in in any way draw your thoughts draw your feelings draw your parts it's depicting them it's it's allowing them to be witnessed allowing them to be seen and uh, you know, once it's on paper, you know, say to externalize it, it can be a helpful step and then being curious, curious toward it. Absolutely. That's what uh, poetry is for me. I think that's what I try to have my stories be as well is aspects of my, my inner self, you know, showing up in these characters and then able to be read. And then hopefully people will read it, <laughs> but closing thoughts. We've talked about the story. Uh, really thankful to have read it. It's been a great, Great read, really interesting. How uh, how should this sort of story shape us? Or if we were to try to extract a practical application or uh, thoughts to think about or a cautionary moment, um, what stands out for you? Do you think? For me, it's just the the ideas, the idea that what we believe does matter, and. I was just so struck how many copies of that yellow book that he bought, you know, the, on uh, of this kind of pleasure-seeking um, hedonist, and he just kind of doubled down on that. And so, yeah, that's kind of what I I'm taking away from it is, uh, yeah, the found the foundations of what you're uh, what you're about matter. Also, don't. Um, when people are uh, duck hunting, don't hide in the bushes. That, that's a secondary ca- uh, tale of caution. I'd say uh, for me, uh, don't use opium. Although actually, on second thought, oh, and then this, uh, you know, 150 years after this is written, opium might be better, safer than like hydrocodone. <laughs> I don't know. I probably shouldn't say that. Please do, do not listen to this show for official medication drug advice because it is all bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> talk to your psychiatrist. For serious though, practical application, uh, tell your secrets carefully and like not to everybody. I mean, don't tell your secrets to the Lord Henry's in your life. You know, tell your secrets to like the Basil Howards who will probably be kinder to you about them and more discreet. Your secrets kill you. Your secrets are burdens, they're toxins especially if there's secrets about how you're hurting yourself or hurting someone else. Uh, 
don't hide that stuff. It's it's really bad. Uh, so yeah, bring bring the uh, bring the inner world out in a very safe context. Um, and then yeah, like you're saying, be really mindful about what your inner life is, and remember that that is that that is the real you. The inner you is is the most real you. On that note, I guess we'll close. Yes, this has been the picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde with Moses and Joel. We may, this has not been yet fully planned, we may watch the movie, the picture of Dorian Gray, and then review it here. Hopefully Joel will do that with me, maybe a couple others. So stay tuned for that. Please do uh, visit Joel's website, joelhere.com, is what he said? Yeah, that's right, joelhere.com. Buy his books, read his poems, love him to death. Well, not to death, because I want him around still. And uh, then visit my website, mosesburnabay.com, or patreon.com slash mosesburnabay, and subscribe to me there, because uh, I'd like to stay in touch with you also. Joel, thank you for being here. Thank you for reading with me. I hope we get to do it again with other stories. Me too. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Goodbye, everyone. Good night. And watch out for rogue paintings. Word and Journey is a podcast by Moses Bernabe. If you like what you hear, consider supporting the show with dollars, reviews, or shares, or all of the above. Word and Journey can be found on most major podcast platforms and on my author Patreon at patreon.com slash Moses Bernabe. Moses Bernabe can be found at mosesbernabe.com. Contact info for my most excellent co-hosts can be found in the liner notes. The podcast logo was designed by TJ Todd with additional development by Moses Bernabe. The theme music is by Aaron Esparza. This episode was mastered by Breakfast Puppies. Thanks for listening and see you next time.